sometimes you gotta do what you gotta do to get to do what you wanna do. Hey, and welcome to another week of Funny Business. Today with me, I have Dr. Ivan Meisner. Ivan, how are you? I'm fantastic, Ken. Thanks for asking, and uh, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Always happy to have another guest on the show. So before we before we get started, give me a brief overview. You you work for BNI. You've run the company for a long time. But what exactly is BNI, and what service do you give to the world? Yeah, yeah. So I'm the founder of BNI. I started the organization 36 years ago. We now have 10,362 groups in more than 70 countries around the world. BNI is a referral organization. Our members get together every week. Now, before COVID, it was in person every week. Now it's mostly online, but some groups are going back to in person. So we have weekly meetings where members get together, get to know one another, trust one another, and pass referrals to each other. Last year in 2020, during the craziest year I've ever seen, our members passed over 13 million referrals to each other and generated six. 16 billion with a B, 16 billion US dollars in what we call thank you for closed business, the business that was passed back and forth. Now, just so you know, uh, Kent, 16 billion dollars is more than twice the gross domestic product for the country of Liechtenstein. Wow. Okay, it's a small country, I know. But yeah, still, yeah. It's but still pretty cool. Would generate more than the GDP of a small country. That's crazy! Wow, that is incredible. Okay, before we get into more in the nitty gritty of BNI, I want to know more about you. So, where did you grow up, and what was your childhood like? So, I grew up in Southern California. I, I was born in Pittsburgh. Um, my parents moved to Los Angeles when I was six. They didn't really know LA, and we moved to basically right by South Central LA, where, where every riot has started in Los Angeles. So mm -hmm. I, I lived there for about a year. And then we moved to Azusa, uh, which is a couple of steps up. But I, I grew up in a, a very working class family, um, but, but great parents. I mean, I had really very, very good parents. That aside, my childhood was much like many people's childhoods. Uh, kids can be really cruel. And I certainly had my share of that as a, a young person. But Overall, uh, you know, I think I had a, a good childhood, certainly had good parents. What took you from California to starting BNI? Yeah, well, I started BNI in California and uh, was there, you know, I ran the business for 30 years uh, out of California. And I, I started BNI, I mean, BNI is the classic example of necessity being the mother of invention. I, I was a management consultant for several years. And I was, I got most of my business through referrals and speaking engagements. So I, I went to a lot of networks that were really mercenary. Everybody was trying to sell to me. And then I went to other networks that were totally social. I didn't like either of those. Mm. And so I wanted to form a group that was focused on business, but not transactional. And mm. that really was relational versus just totally social. And the glue that would hold that together is our principal core value of giver's gain. This idea that if I help you, you'll help me and we'll all do better. And, and so I started it really with the idea of having one chapter. I had no vision. I'd like to tell you, I had this vision of a global organization. That came, that came about 11 months later. But I just needed some referrals for my consulting practice and I wanted to help my friends. And so I formed a group, uh, it went really well. People kept asking me to open up a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth. And we ended up opening 20 chapters by the end of the year without a plan. 
And it was at that point that I realized I had grabbed the tiger by the tail and it could have been, it could have been much, much bigger. And, and became much bigger. Okay, so in starting up all this, obviously there was a lot of necessity that made it grow at the rapid rate that it did. What were some of the mistakes that you made in starting up the company and what did you learn from it? Well, you know, if we really want to go through all the mistakes, this would have to be an all day show instead of <laughs> a, you know, just 30 minutes or less because, uh, you know, I made lots of mistakes and I talked to people about, you know, as the company got bigger and I had employees, I remember talking to a friend and saying, man, I'm really worried about what'll happen if I make a mistake, because it's not just me anymore and my family, it's, it's the families who I, you know, I employ their, their parent or, or, or you know, one of their, their significant others. And so I remember him saying to me, um, yeah, don't worry about making mistakes. You will, it's inevitable. But when you make a mistake, just try to recognize it as quickly as possible and fix it as quickly as possible. And that was really good advice because he was right. Um, I made tons of mistakes and I uh, really did my best to recognize when it was a mistake and to move on as quickly as possible. So probably the biggest early mistake I made was not fully understanding what I call the leaky bucket theory of training. You see, if you train me on how to do something, that bucket of information, some of it leaks out. Sure. You know, I don't, I don't get it all. And then when I train somebody else how to do that same thing, more information leaks out. And I found that after about the third generation of training from, because in BNI, you know, the, the way I set it up was that the existing leadership team trained the next one, the next one trained the next one. Well, within two or three generations, the meetings were completely different. It's like the telephone game. I mean, they just, they just started making stuff up. And, you know, if you only have a half a bucket of information, you can see that something's missing. So you start putting your own stuff in. And so one of the very first things I caught as quickly as possible was that I had to write everything down and everybody had to train from the same manual so mm. that it would reduce the leaky bucket paradigm and there would be less of it. So that was one of my biggest, uh, you know, entrepreneurs just love making stuff up. Yeah. <laughs> But the truth is, if you want to be a global uh, enterprise, if you want to scale, even if you don't want to be global, if you want to scale, then you can't be letting people make stuff up without a plan. And we had a plan for, for testing ideas. So I'm okay with testing ideas, but you got to have a plan. If you do it willy-nilly, you're going to end up in trouble. Wow. No, I like that idea. I think that there are entire companies revolving around that one idea of solving the whole leaky bucket. You said that you were a consultant before and that you were trying to solve the problem of just the, the different network strategies that were out there. But where did you discover the insights that were necessary about how to create the business the way that you wanted it to? Yeah, so look, I, I was method acting my way through this process, okay? <laughs> you know, so many people think, oh, you, know, you just have, you have this great idea and, and then it just all comes together. For me, it was 30 minutes of inspiration and 30 years of perspiration running mm. the company. And, you know, I no longer run the day-to-day -day operations. I'm, I'm the Colonel Sanders of BNI, so I don't have to mess with all that stuff. But, you know, what I did was I observed what worked and wrote it down. I observed what did not work and I wrote it down. I wrote it down so that when people say, hey, I have this great idea, why don't you do X? I could say, yeah, we tried that. Here's, here's what we did, here's what happened. I mean, I'll give you a good example. 
when I first started BNI, um, you know, our meetings are weekly. And a lot of people said, I don't want to meet every week. Can we meet, you know, every other week? And, and so I'm like, yeah, okay, we can, we can do a couple times a month. And we tried it out. And what we discovered was that the chapters who met uh, twice a month instead of every week passed 52% less referrals than the chapters that met every week. And there wasn't a ton of them. Um, you know, I only had like 30 chapters when I came to the conclusion that, yeah, they're not generating as much business. And so I, there were seven of them that were meeting twice a month. And I said to him, look, if I could show you one thing to change, just change one thing uh, and have it double the amount of referrals that you're passing, would you do it? And they're like, yeah, of course. It's like meet every week. And I, gave, I showed them the data and they're like, oh my goodness. All right. So six out of the seven made the change. Wow. Yeah, I was really impressed with them and proud of them. The seventh would not. And they ended up closing down within a year because they just, it wasn't worth their time. That's, I love it. I love it when data can speak to efficacy. Yes, 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 yes. And I hate it when the data has better information than I have, you know. <laughs> it's like, I have seen, no, so here's, here's an example of how data has affected uh, me recently in business. We were taking a look at um, longevity in the organization, retention, um, you know, what people stay longer. And, you know, there were several things that we thought that were right on the money, like a, a training that we call member success program training. Mm -hmm. People who, who join and then complete member success program training quickly, the retention rate is higher. That was no surprise. I mean, it's like, that was, that was for me, that was a BFO. BFO uh, in BNI, we, we call a BFO a blinding flash of the obvious. I expected that. Here's the thing that blew me away. And it was the data. It was a data-driven discovery. We found that the, the number one, well, the number two thing after member success program training, but very close, the number two factor in retaining members was if they invited someone else who joined. That is, they sponsored someone. Mm -hmm. It was almost as high of a retention rate as the member success program training. And at first we were like, what the heck? How could, why would sponsoring someone increase their interest in staying even longer? And it turned out it was, it was all about relationships. That people mm -hmm. who brought in people they you know, know, like, and trust, and those people joined, the existing members didn't want to abandon them because they brought them in and they have a relationship with these people. And so there is a great example of how the data has driven some of our decisions in the last couple of years because of that. We've said BNI a lot. What does BNI actually stand for? It stands for Business Network International. <clears throat> and, gotcha. uh, you know, I was thinking big. I came up with that name before we were international, but uh, you know, I. I really believed that someday we could have 10,000 chapters. And I remember when I did the calculation, I mean, I literally, I had to go to a library, okay? This was before Monsieur Google, where you could just Google facts. I had to go, I was a professor, a part-time professor at that time. So I went into the university library, looked at reference books, checked out books for populations and the number of cities. And it took me months to get all the data and do the calculation. And I remember I told a friend, you know, I think, now this was June of 1986. So mm -hmm. B and I had been around for a year and a half. And I told my friend, you know, I think someday, someday I think B and I could have over 10,000 chapters. 
And he looked at me and he, Kent, and he said, and how many chapters do you have now? I said, 30. <laughs> and he said, and you think you can have 10,000 chapters? I said, yeah, I think we can have over 10,000 chapters. And I remember him saying, you know, well, it's good to have goals, Ivan, very good to have goals. <laughs> In December of 2020, we crossed the 10,000 chapter mark. How can something like BNI actually help a business owner? And what purpose does this network actually serve? Yeah, so our, our stated purpose is you know our mission statement is to help people increase each other's business through a structured, positive, uh, professional referral marketing platform. So to help people get referrals, that is why people join. But that's not the only reason they stay, which is amazing. That's an, here's another data point that we found interesting, and we've had this for a long time. They stay for the referrals, but they they also stay for the friendships that are mm -hmm. developed and the emotional support that is given. For example, last year uh, during COVID, you know, that was, that was incredibly disruptive for businesses. I don't need to tell you that. I mean, everybody knows that. Oh, and yeah. so what BNI became, and it was never in my vision when I started BNI, but I observed this through catastrophes and through recessions that took place, is that BNI is a beacon of hope mm. and sea of fear. There is so much fear when you go through a recession or you have a, a tsunami like Japan did or an earthquake like LA or Katrina in New Orleans where these things happen and all the businesses are afraid for their existence, for their ongoing existence. And an organization like BNI, is a, it's a beacon of hope. It helps people understand, hey, we can get through this. We're here for each other. We'll help one another. And I mean, I was just so proud uh, of the fact that we generated 16 billion in business during the craziest year I've ever seen in my life. But there's always somebody out there that seems to be doing what we're doing, but better, regardless of what industry you're in. And I love the idea that good artists uh, will borrow or, or uh, create on their own, but great artists steal. So my question is, is what did you steal and how did you uh, put your own spin on it for your business? I don't know I, that I would say I stole anything, um, but certainly ideas are formulated by picking and choosing concepts that one hears over time. Uh, for example, when I started BNI, one of the books I read was The E-Myth by Michael Gerber. And Michael has since become a good friend of mine. But, you know, back then, you know, he, he was just the icon that he that he is. And, you know, one of the things he talked about was, you know, learning to execute the fundamentals and to and do the, you know, write everything down, which I, I did, and to execute those fundamentals over and over and over again. I turned that into the concept of you, you want to be successful in business. You got to do six things a thousand times not a thousand things six times. Mm. And uh, Kent, I just see way too many business people who are constantly chasing bright, shiny objects and they're doing a thousand things six times. And by the way, it doesn't have to be six. It could be five, it could be seven. It's a handful of things. And you got to do it over and over and over again. If I have any superpower as a business person, it is that I am a dog with a bone. I just take some issue and I work it and work it and work it. And I think that's, you know, an idea that's not new, but that phrase just encapsulates that concept so incredibly well.
I'll give you one more that I think is important. And, and people talk about, do, you know, if you do what you love, you love what you do. If you love what you do, you'll do what you love. I like to, I like to put it this way. I believe it's important to work in your flame and not your wax. When you're working in your flame, you're on fire. You're excited. You love it. People can see it in the way you behave. They can hear it in your voice. When you're working in your wax, it just takes all your energy away. People can see that in the way you behave. They can hear that in your voice. Mm. And so I tell people, find your flame. And over time, really work towards working in that flame more and more and more. None of us get to do it 100% from the beginning. I didn't. I understood that sometimes you got to do what you got to do to get to do what you want to do. And, and I get that. And it took me a long time to be able to be working in my flame. You know, 95% of my time now is working in my flame. You know, I, I, I think that's important. And it's something that I would tell entrepreneurs to really try to focus on. There are definitely people that I can see in both of those situations. Heck, I can see individual projects that I've worked on where I've been more of a wax person than a flame person and, and vice versa. And you know what, um, as an entrepreneur, you also have to recognize that sometimes you have to reinvent yourself. You know, I, I um, you know, ran the company for 30 years and I loved, I loved running the company. It, it was incredible. You know, I was, I was the King Thoden. I think it was Lord of the Rings, you know, he's leading the charge out there. But at some point, you know, that 30 years is a long time. Uh, I got tired. It became my wax. And so I really worked hard to reinvent myself. Mm. so that I could spend most of my time in my flame. And by the way, this is my flame. <clears throat> I love doing interviews. I love pouring into people the, the things that I've learned, the things that I've done wrong, the things I've done right, so that, you know, maybe just possibly the smart ones out there won't try and reinvent the wheel and, and you know, they'll listen to other people's advice who they trust. So how do you achieve efficiency? You were telling me before we started recording that you, you used to work like 70 hours a week. Now you've reduced that to 40 in part-time retirement. So, I mean, I was really running a lot for, for probably too many years. I, I said 30 years. I probably didn't work that long for 30 years. I probably worked that long for probably 20, 25 of those years until I got, I, you know, I, I tell people I'm a 20 year overnight success. It, it took me 20 years to really build a business and to, to be able to hire more and more people that could help me scale the business globally. So one of the things that I've always been a fanatic about in terms of helping me be, I, I would say effective, because the only thing more important than efficient is effective. And so um, one of the things that helped me to be effective was I am a, a zealot about my calendar. I am a zealot about my calendar. And it, you know, if, if it's not on my calendar, it's not, I'm not gonna devote time to it. But more importantly, I color code my mm. calendar. I am a zealot about color coding it. And the things that are my flame are all in, on my calendar, they're all in green. And the only reason I picked green was uh, there seems to be on Outlook, there seems to be more variations of the color green. So uh, there's a number of things that are important to me, like, like interviews like this or writing or speaking or charitable work, uh, you know, foundation work, uh, working mm. for charitable organizations. You know, that's a, a, one of the variations of green. You know, one of the things my late wife would always do when I started the day and I 
you know, walk the 52 steps from my house to, to the office I built. She would say, do you have a green day today? Mm. And I could, I could look at a glance and I could tell immediately whether this was a day where I'm really working on the business. Again, Michael Gerber, working on the business versus in the business. And um, so I, I have really become a zealot on my calendar and color coding it. So mm. that I knew, you know, you know, phone calls may be a, in blue or meeting in persons of color. Red is bad. Red's usually very bad. What it, are the red things? It's usually lawyers and CPAs. You know, <laughs> totally my wax, not my not my flame. So uh, yeah, th- that's how I I think I really learned to become more effective. That's so awesome. Uh, I laugh that you say that those are the things that you put in red because I work as a producer here at the uh, Harmon Brothers and uh, that entire life is hiring the right people to get in the right positions and then making sure that the budget's all balanced. And for me, that is like, it's a giant puzzle and you just have to try and make sure that it's constantly shifting and and balancing at the right point. People is a challenge uh, for any business. It really is. Um, I had lunch, you you know, Harvey McKay, he wrote the book, Uh, Swim with the Sharks Without Beating You. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I had lunch with Harvey, it was maybe 12 years ago or so. And he said something very profound to me. He said, Ivan, I've lost more sleep over the people I've kept than the people I have fired during my Mm -hmm. career. And he said, I lose sleep over firing people. I don't like firing people, but I've lost way more sleep over the people I kept. And that was an important lesson for me and one that I started to employ more and more. I think, you know, you, 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 you hire slow and fire fast because when the person just isn't capable of doing the job, it's better for them, it's better for you, it's better for everyone to yeah. move them on. Uh, that is literally the worst part of the job, in my opinion, is firing somebody. It sucks. So you, you talked about how it took 20 years to get your overnight success. I love that. Um, what is the biggest challenge in your field that you have to overcome to date? Well, uh, you know, we certainly went through it in COVID. I mean, think about it. Uh, when COVID started, we had 9,700 groups. Now we are, we're over 9,600, uh, I'm sorry, 10,300. So we've opened 600 chapters during COVID. Um, so almost 10,000 groups meeting in person every week. So the biggest challenge we had was transitioning to online. And we, we did it uh, within weeks in every country. As a matter of fact, in China, we started flipping to online in January of 2020. Uh, we flipped Italy in early February and the rest of Europe in February and then uh, the entire world in March of 2020 because COVID had, had spread. And so um, we, that was, you know, clearly one of the biggest challenges, but the CEO, he was looking around a corner to see how COVID was going to impact business. And I was looking around a corner in terms of technology because I wrote an article for Entrepreneur and I forget the exact title, but it's something like um, the future of face-to-face is online. Mm. And I wrote that in 2018 and uh, you know, People were like, no, say it's not so. You're the founder of BNI. We're an in-person organization. But I saw disruption headed our way. Mm-hmm. And I've seen companies like, like uh, Blockbuster and Sears and Kodak get disrupted. And um, I didn't want to, I didn't want to be, a, you know, the 600 pound gorilla in our field and be disrupted because we got complacent. And so I saw technology as Uh, potentially a good thing that Mm. we could lead the disruption and not be 
disrupted. And it surprised people to, to you know, be talking about technology and, and networking, but I've always been an early adopter to technology. I mean, our domain name is bni.com. You can't get a three letter domain name <laughs> unless you were an early adopter to the technology. And yeah. so I, I, you know, try to see what, what the technology can bring to the table as opposed to try and keeping it away. That's something that I hear of a lot while interviewing entrepreneurs is always, how do we adapt? How do we adapt? How do we adapt? Um, yeah, you have to, you, you know, you, there's, there's so many dead or almost dead companies out there. Kodak, Kodak invented the digital camera. I don't know if you knew that, Kent. They had the patent on the digital camera, but they said, look, we don't want to mess with our film processing business. So let's license it out. And one of their executives actually said, went on record and said, besides nobody's going to ever look at pictures on a computer. And, you know, how did that work out for them? Not so well. <laughs> Not so well. Sears is another great example. Sears, you know, you may be too young to remember the Sears catalog. Oh, no, I remember it. You remember big, thick catalog, you know, inches thick, and they'd mail it. And they finally decided that the print catalog business was dead, and they closed their doors in 1993. Wow. Do you know who opened their doors in 1994? I'm guessing Amazon. Amazon. There it yeah. is. So had someone from Sears said, you know, this print catalog thing is dying. Maybe we should really take a good look at this online thing because yeah. maybe we could transition to online. I mean, Kodak could have been Apple mm. because you know they did computers, but then they went to phones because then the cameras were such a big deal with it. Um, Sears could have been Amazon. Mm. Had they had the foresight to not look at the changes coming down the road as just disruption, but as opportunities. And I think that's one of the things that, that I've done reasonably well uh, over the years. So let me ask you this then. Um, how do you decide whether something is a distraction or something that's necessary to adapt to? Just finished a book on, it was called Super Forecaster, Super Forecasting or Super Forecasters. It was a great book. and. One of the best lessons I got out of it is, an, is the answer to your question. You keep, you keep adjusting your forecast. Mm. So the super forecasters don't say, I believe X will happen and, and it'll happen by such and such a date and they stop. No, they keep adjusting their forecast. They keep saying, yeah, I still believe that'll happen, but it might happen quicker than we thought or it might happen later than we thought, or there might be a variation on what I forecast, and this is the new forecast. And so I think the answer to the question is, don't stop playing with the forecast. Adjust, mm. adjust, adjust, adjust. And what happens then is that you, you, you end up going in the right direction by constantly looking at the data, which we've talked about, and constantly looking at the, the new technology that's being developed. That's the answer. So I, I believe that you know, the leadership of BNI is, is constantly adjusting our view of the world. Who is your ideal client? What's the best way for them to get in contact with you? And what would you want their first steps to be? So, you know, to me, the ideal member of BNI is someone who wants to develop a lifelong referrals. They, they are a long-term thinker, not a short-term thinker, because I'm here to tell you BNI is a marathon, not a sprint. 
that the people who come into the organization and they're just running like crazy and expect business overnight, they're mistaken. Networking is more about farming than it is about hunting. Mm-hmm. It's about cultivating relationships with other business professionals. And I think that is so incredibly important. Uh, where would they go? Uh, BNI.com, you can find uh, chapters. Most of them are still meeting online, but it's still based on regional location because we might, we, we just did some survey work, the data, and found, you know, a, a year, year and a half ago, virtually none of our members wanted to do online. But today, almost two thirds of our members are willing to do a permanent variation of online and in-person. So there's about 51% want to do a hybrid or, or uh, a, a blend and uh, 16% want just online, uh, 33% compared to a year and a half ago, which would have been 95% uh, want to go to, uh, you know, in person. So it is still geographically based. So find out, uh, find a chapter near you. And what would be the first things they would do? Well, member success program training, which we talked about, that's really important. And, um, and, and also, you know, bringing in a member because it, it, it will increase your connection in the chapter. But here's another one that we haven't talked about. And again, I have more data for this. Doing one-to-ones networking is so important and really going deep in the one-to-ones and finding ways to help each other. Don't do a one-to-one to to sell to somebody. Do a one-to-one to to build a relationship with somebody. Yeah. And, and, And before we wrap up, I have one last thought about relationships. But you want to build relationships with them. And the, one of the best ways, the force multiplier to help expedite a relationship is doing a one-to-one where you're not there to sell them. You're there to learn about them and teach them about what you do. And so in Europe, we did this uh, university study of a region in BNI where they looked at people who did one-to-ones and they compared people who did one one-to-one a month compared to people who did four one-to-ones a month. So one a week versus one a month. And the people who did four one-to-ones a month uh, gave twice as many referrals as the people who only did one one one-to-one a month. But here's the beautiful part, Kent. They received twice as many referrals as the people who did only one one one-to-one a month. So again, I go to chapters and I say, how would you like to get twice as many referrals and people go, yeah, of course, do one-to-ones and do legitimate one-to-ones. And we have a training system, it's called the Gains Exchange to teach people how to do a, a good one-to-one. So uh, those are some of the things I would tell a new member uh, of BNI. You know, the old saying, it's, it's, uh, it's not what we know. It's not what you know, it's who you know. Yeah. I don't believe it's either of those. Okay. I, I don't believe it's what you know or who you know. It's how well you know each other that mm. really makes a difference. Because you may have an amazing database and you may be able to pick up your phone and, 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 and there's somebody incredible in your database. But the real question is, if you called them, would they take your call? Mm. And if you asked them for a favor, would they most likely say yes? Yeah. So it's not just the contacts you have, it's not just who you know, it's how well you know each other that really makes a difference. And that's why I believe in meeting every week, that's why I believe in the one-to-ones. And you know, in a way that's why I believe in the training because we don't teach this in schools and uh, colleges and universities anywhere in the world. And so yeah. doing the training that we do uh, will help 
teach people how to build those long-term relationships. Well, Ivan, this has been absolutely fascinating, and I apologize that we ran a little bit over time. No worries. Uh, it's my pleasure to do it. Thanks for inviting me. For those of you that are watching at home, thank you so much for watching. Please like and share this, and uh, consider subscribing to the podcast. We'll see you next week. Want to learn the tricks of our trade? We have them all laid out in our courses on Harmon Brothers University. This isn't surface level stuff here. This is our entire playbook, all our secrets laid out in full, the same training we give our own employees. You'll find courses on ad buying, writing video scripts to sell your product or service, creating the kind of large production ads we're known for, even making short ads using nothing but your cell phone. If you're looking to use video marketing to take your business to the next level, Harmon Brothers University has the course for you. Our students have seen incredible growth in their businesses by implementing what they learned in our courses. Take these reviews as living proof. We've now got multiple campaigns that are in the millions of views and in the multiple millions of dollars in sales. Within a week, we're close to 10 million views, over a million in sales, and most impressively, we've covered 100% of the production costs in the first 24 hours of releasing it. We saw immediate results. Sales went up 10x the first day. The first video we did is over 30 million views. The most customers that we've ever acquired in a single month. I think we had about 26,000 new customers. Go to HarmanBrothersUniversity.com to start accelerating your business's growth with video.